Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 197. My name is Terry Frost and this time around because I just saw Ron Howard's documentary about the touring years of the Beatles, I thought I'd take a look at two of the Beatles films. The first two in fact, A Hard Day's Night from 1964 and Help from 1965. They're a little bit light and fluffy, but they're part of a phenomenon that really was unprecedented and hasn't been equaled since in some ways. Beatlemania is a very interesting social phenomenon. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and then we'll start talking mop tops. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of classic movie appreciation. It appears every two weeks, and the only rule is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Probably not going to do genre films because genre films go over to the Martian Driving podcast, but nonetheless, that's the rule. More than 20 years old. You can contact and offer feedback several ways. The first one is the new feedback email address, feedbackpaleo, P A L E O, at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook and leave feedback there and get updates, or you can go to paleo cinema.blogspot.com and listen to the episodes there and put feedback through. This podcast may contain adult materials, so please don't listen to it when children are around or when you have your granny over. How is everybody doing? Uh, it's crazily windy here and there's going to be storms blowing through. The weather's quite warm for this time of year, but if you hear a lot of rattling and banging, it's not me falling out of a chair or anything. Blame climate change because uh, the weather is getting very crazy around here. South Australia got a whole bunch of storms the other day. Um, knocked out the power for the entire state, which is not a small state. Check it out if you don't believe me. Um, and still very chaotic out there. So if you hear noises in the background, most of them, not all of them, but most of them are going to be related to what's happening outside the window. So as usual, I'll start with the stuff I've been watching. And uh, I'll leave aside the Beatles stuff because I'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, I did see the Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse, which is a very ordinary zombie comedy. Don't bother. It's not really worth your time. Uh, let's see what else I watched. I watched Dead Snow 2, which is the sequel to the Norwegian movie Dead Snow, about a bunch of Nazi zombies who get resurrected and cause havoc in Norway. Uh, the sequel is quite funny. It's got some ridiculous kind of over-the-top gross-out comedy moments. Uh, don't look the bit right at the end. Uh, I'll leave that for you to find. But uh, it was uh, fun and it kind of worked. And uh, yeah, um, if you're into that kind of gross-out, over-the-top gore comedy, that's definitely one to see. Uh, let's see, what else to watch? I, I watched most of this film. Uh, it's a movie called The Mephisto Waltz, which was made by Quinn Martin, who did all those television things in the 1960s and 1970s. It's the only feature film he did. It's a kind of um, horror thing with Alan Alder, Jacqueline Bissett, and Kurt Jurgens and Barbara Parkin in it. Um, it. It's pretty bad, to be honest with you. There's no tension in the horror. Um, they, they try to do things the interesting thing is that Quinn Martin did television a lot and he got one of his television directors Paul Wencost to direct this one and it plays the way they kind of portray the horror and portray the supernatural aspects play out in a very television rather than a very cinematic way and that's kind of uh, weakens things a lot so I'm not going to bother 
watching the rest of that, I don't think there's tons of other stuff to watch. But uh, I did spend yesterday binging, Netflix binging on Luke Cage, the movie adaptation of the Marvel comic, which I've been fond of since the 1970s, when Luke Cage wore a yellow shirt, a tiara, a belt made out of an enormous chain and black pants and boots. But uh, this is the modern version with Mike Coulter starring as Luke Cage. It's got a fantastic supporting cast, including Alfred Woodard, um, Rosario Dawson, and a bunch of other people. It really does something interesting with superheroes. It's set in Harlem, of course. And it blends superheroes with a lot of things about black culture. The music in it is fantastic. It's, it's beautifully um, paced. I, I did the whole 13 hours of it in a couple of sittings, which is kind of cool. And, um, yeah, it, it talks about Black Lives Matters. It talks about the culture of um, black people in America. It talks about the arts. It talks about how crime has an effect on communities and on families. And it talks about abuse as well, in parallel with the stuff that we saw in Jessica Jones. It's not necessarily that kind of abuse, but there's some very strong bits in it and... Um, some very graphic-ish violence in it. But I, I enjoyed it a lot. I think uh, Marvel and Netflix are doing marvellous things with that part of the Marvel Universe. And if you haven't seen Luke Cage yet, definitely do so. It, um, it, it really has some fantastic stuff in it. And it's well worth your time. Uh, I think they've done a superb job. And I think one of the good things about uh, the Marvel Netflix thing is that they've got the room to talk about larger issues in a nuanced and complicated way. The movies, of course, are only two hours, two hours and a bit. But when you've got 12 or 13 hours to play out a story, then you've got that ability to make it a more complex story, make it a more layered story and to have... A lot of different characters have their arc. And that's exactly what happens with Luke Cage. And I think it's... Um, may you even go back and rewatch it at some stage. Not soon, because I want to kind of let it settle. But it's the good stuff. And it references black exploitation cinema without going into the problems that a lot of people have with black exploitation cinema. It references black pop culture in a literary sense with people sitting down and comparing Walter Mosley with Chester Himes and uh, a bunch of other kind of writers, black writers. Uh, Ralph Ellison gets a mention in there as well. And, and there's a kind of nuanced discussion of these guys sitting around talking about whether Chester Himes and um, Walter Mosley are the real deal and a couple of other people they don't quite like as much. And I kind of like that. I like that um, the fact that the other thing is on the pulse of culture in general and it just really does work anyway that's 2016 i'm going to take a break and when i get back we're going to back to 1964 it's been a hard Alright, you know I work all day to get 
It's a Hard Day's Night, 1964. It was directed by Richard Lester, a guy from Pennsylvania who became an expatriate in England. And um, it was made on a budget of $200,000 and made 16 times its money back, which is not a bad investment for anything, really. It was made by United Artists, and their predominant reason for making it is they thought that the Beatles were going to be another Freddie and the Dreamers or another... Dave Clark 5 or another Jerry and the Pacemakers. So they wanted to kind of capitalise on this short, what they thought was a short-term phenomenon. So they put this movie out very, very quickly. It was filmed quite quickly. It was done on a relatively low budget because they wanted to get the soundtrack album out in the United States before Capitol Records got around to issuing the material they had. Now, I found on Wikipedia a quote from a guy called Bud Ormstein, the European Head of Production for United Artists. He said, Our record division wanted to get the soundtrack album to distribute in the States, and what we lose on the film we get back on the disc. So it was intended, um, as Stephen Glynn, a historian, said, it was intended as a low-budget exploitation movie to milk the latest brief musical craze for all it was worth. And that brings us to... The Zeitgeist, The Spirit of the Times in 1964. Really interesting period of time because the baby boom generation, the post-war children, were just starting to come into their own. They were teenagers in some cases, and there were a lot of them. After the war, people fucked like crazy and produced children in mega amounts. So suddenly they've got this whole generation of teenagers. The percentage of the population that were teenaged was immense in Western cultures. And they had some economic freedom as well. A lot of them went to work. People didn't go to university quite as much as they do now in those days. So they were earning a living and they had disposable income and they wanted music that represented what they knew. Then these are people who, as the, as children, grew up, particularly in England. We'll use England as the example because that's where this thing hit first. They grew up and part of their childhood was under um, food and, and resource rationing. And it was quite a hard time. The nation of England was, and the UK in general was bankrupt and they had to kind of pull themselves out of the economic slump that had been caused by the deprivations of World War II. They weren't Robinson Crusoe in there. There were a lot of other countries that had it worse, but, you know, life wasn't a cabaret in England either. So you've got this generation of people who had gone through some stuff as children. They were coming into their own as human beings. They wanted music that represented them, and Lennon and McCartney's songs did that, as it indeed did a lot of other things. By the time 
uh, A Hard Day's Night came out. Lennon and McCartney have been together with the Quarrymen, their first band, and um, they've been working together for about seven years. So they, they knew each other well. They worked well together. George and Ringo came into the band, and, and the ensemble really worked. They were brothers together, and which the documentary, the Ron Howard documentary, uh, The Beatles, Eight Days a Week, the touring years, which is a very long title for a documentary, shows a lot of that. Then you've got a couple of other things that came in from the sidelines in England as well. There was that class consciousness. Suddenly there were these four working class guys who didn't have London accents and didn't go to the right schools and weren't part of the established class structure at the top end, who were suddenly incredibly popular and becoming increasingly wealthy. And they also had a rather anarchic attitude to class and the social structure as it existed in England at the time and to a greater extent still exists to this day. So you've got four Liverpudlian, intelligent and very talented guys um, taking the piss out of the power structure as it existed. They didn't do it to a vicious extent, but they kind of mildly mocked it. They had a slightly Marx Brothers-ish sense of humour. They were fond of wordplay, of course, being songwriters, who wouldn't be? And they really um, were out of left field and they weren't part of the establishment. And they became very big because of that, because most of the people in any particular society are not of the top tiers of that society. And people hearing a regional accent coming from these guys and hearing songs that spoke to them and their experiences in life rather than some idealised upper-class idea of romance and relationships and trying to figure out who you are in life. It spoke to a lot of people, even though um, George Martin, who was their musical producer, and Brian Epstein, who was um, their manager weren't necessarily working class themselves they kind of encouraged and and nursed these guys through this incredible wave they were riding there were three big cultural manias that sit squarely around the middle of the 1960s the first one of course was Beatlemania second one was Bond Mania James Bond was incredibly big then there was Batmania when Batman came out in 1965 1966 um, there was an incredible pop cultural phenomenon for the Batman TV series so all these three B manias came out at roughly the same time because there was a youth culture out there that really wanted to find their own stuff and didn't want to have to um, wear the Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello stuff for the rest of their lives I remember a bit of Beatlemania one of the things I remember about Beatlemania there are two things predominantly apart well three, I'll give it three the first one was my sister Sandy was born in about 1962 and her first words and I kid you not were yeah 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 because she loves you was playing constantly on the radio and she picked that up so her first words were yeah 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 which is kind of cool. Second thing is that I tried on Beatle memorabilia was even in working class suburbs of Sydney in the 1960s there was Beatle memorabilia there and one of the things I had were plastic beetle wigs and I remember trying on a plastic beetle wig and this is before any kind of consumer product safety stuff was happening and the top of my ear got cut by the sharp edge of the beetle wig so I remember that the third thing was I was in kindergarten at the time and my teacher was late for school one day it was a rainy day in Sydney in 1964 
the reason my teacher was late was she went to the airport in the morning to see the Beatles arriving at Sydney Airport. And she was part of that screaming girly mob that um, <laughs> followed the Beatles everywhere. Then she came to work and, and took over the class again and, and everything was well. And she told us about her experience of seeing the Beatles landing in Sydney Airport and, and everybody around them screaming. And because there weren't that many radios, well, there were, were a number of radio stations, but the radio stations that were on at home were the ones that did things like playing the Beatles. And my mother was very big into pop music at the time. She'd go and see live bands. and She'd take my brother and I, and, and later on Sandy, when we were very young, to see all sorts of pop bands in the 1960s. People have now forgotten, like Lonnie Lee, and um, Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, all that kind of stuff. We saw them. So the radio was on, and it played the Beatles a hell of a lot. Radio stations like 2SM were playing them constantly as a part of their playlist. There's never been anything like it since then. I asked my father-in-law about this, because my father-in-law was born and raised in Liverpool. And I said to Peter, tell me about Beatlemania. He said, yeah, we used to go to the Cavern nightclub, which, by the way, now is a coffee shop in the bottom of a shopping mall, because Sally and I went there. Um... Uh, but I was more into the Rolling Stones, and I thought, okay, well, fair enough. You're into the Rolling Stones. You're more into the London scene than the Merseybeat scene. Fair enough. Uh, he said that um, it was really big, and they were very proud of local boys making that good. There was um, a lot of support in general for the Beatles, and of course, the music scene at Liverpool. They, they, these guys didn't create the music scene in a vacuum. The music scene in Liverpool had been big since the middle of the 1950s, and so. They, they had an environment that nurtured their talent and nurtured their ambitions to be who they were. But to get back to A Hard Day's Night, it's a fairly simple plot written by Alan Owen, a very well-known English um, playwright, in fact. And uh, with the... It was done in the cine, cinema verite style. I'm going to read you the whole plot from IMDb just to show you how simple the plot is. Bound for a London show, the Beatles escape hordes of fans. Once they're aboard the train and trying to relax, various interruptions test their patience. After a dalliance with a female passenger, Paul's grandfather is confined to the guard's van and the four lads join him to keep him company. John, Paul, George and Ringo play a card game, entertaining schoolgirls before arriving at the destination. Upon arrival in London, the Beatles are driven to a hotel only to feel trapped inside. After a night out during which Paul's grandfather causes minor trouble at a casino, the group is taken to the theatre where the performance is to be televised. The preparations are lengthy, so Ringo decides to spend some time alone reading a book. Paul's grandfather, a villain and a, mix, a real mixer, convinces him to go outside and to experience life rather than reading books. Ringo goes off by himself. He tries to have a quiet drink at a pub, walks alongside a canal and rides a bicycle along a railway station platform. Meanwhile, the rest of the band frantically and unsuccessfully attempts to find Ringo. Finally, he returns after being arrested by the police along with Paul's grandfather and the concert goes ahead as planned. After the concert, the band is taken away from the hordes of fans via helicopter. That's it. That's the whole of the movie in a nutshell. Um, of course, <laughs> that'd be a 10-minute movie in most things. But in this case, it wasn't. Um, the screenwriter, Alan Owen, hung around with the Beatles during their um, tour of France. And again, I'm paraphrasing from Wikipedia because there's a lot of good stuff here. He kind of decided to give each of the Beatles certain roles. 
It was kind of like a Marx Brothers thing where each of the Marx Brothers has a certain persona. And so Alan Owen decided that he was going to give each of them a particular persona, mostly based on the character of the guys themselves. Um, John Lennon's character was a smart-ass, Paul McCartney's cute and sensible, George Harrison was quiet and shy, and Ringo was supposed to be dim-witted and sad. So they kind of played with that, and uh, a lot of it was scripted, but there were improvisations. Some people say that John Lennon was the only one of the four who improvised any of his dialogue for the movie, but other people, and, and which sounds more plausible to me, said that all of them had a little bit of improvisation, a little bit of wordplay there. They had a very northern sense of humour, and it kind of plays out well in the movie. Now, the grandfather was played by Wilford Bramble, a an Irish actor who was very famous at the time for being in a television series called Steptoe and Son. If you've seen Sanford and Son in America, basically Steptoe and Son is the thing they pinch for Sanford and Son. He played a dirty, nasty, bad, you know, mean-spirited old junk guy where Ari H. Corbett played his son. And they were incredibly successful. There's a little joke in A Hard Day's Night about the grandfather being very clean. And that's, that was a kind of joke that they created playing on the fact that Alfred Steptoe, the guy he played in Steptoe and Son, was a dirty old man and you know, didn't bathe anywhere near enough. So saying he was very clean was, was a bit of a um, joke on that. And Wilford Bramble, very well-respected actor. Uh, he had problems with alcoholism. He started out in the Abbey Theatre and in um, Dublin and worked his way across. He was in... He was doing character roles in movies from about 1947. He was actually in Odd Man Out, the um, James Mason movie, which I've talked about on a very earlier Paleo Cinema podcast. And he'd done a number of character roles. He was kind of like um, William Hartnell in that. William Hartnell came big by playing Doctor Who, but he'd been in movies for pretty much the same period of time. Uh, oddly enough, and this is, here's one of the trivia bits from the movie, even though Wilfred Bramble was playing Paul McCartney's grandfather, he was only 30 years older than Paul McCartney, which kind of, the timelines get a bit kind of weird there. One of the other things about Wilfred Bramble was that he was a closeted gay actor, and that's a little bit of a misnomer in some ways because in the UK at the time, there were no people really um, for the most part, who weren't closeted. Because being gay and having a, any kind of gay relationship could get you in prison, and very frequently did. In fact, he was fined in 1962 for um, meeting somebody at a gay beat in London. And that was kind of kept on the lowdown to a certain extent, as he was quite a well-known television actor. But again, it's, there's that problem that a lot of gay people had particularly those who were in the entertainment industry at the time. I mean, people like Noel Coward got away with it. But for the most part, that need to hide who you are in order to not end up having your life ruined by the arbitrary laws of the nation caused a lot of stress to a lot of gay people. They were blackmailed. There were all these kind of problems. There's another um, very famous gay actor in this movie as well, Victor Spinetti, who plays the television director in the movie. 
Victor Spinetti only died a couple of years ago and had a very long-term relationship. Apparently a lovely guy, very well known, but again he had that same experience that Wilfred Bramble had of being persecuted for his sexuality in the UK at the time. But uh, yeah, Wilfred Bramble, he's really good in the movie. He's kind of small, smiling and, and sly little old man who looks like he wouldn't be into anything untoward and yet always inevitably was and uh, for the most part at the start you don't see very much of him being uh, um, dodgy little character except when he's having a glass of champagne in the train carriage with a lady he's just met and he's he's kind of a, a ladies man to a certain extent and a con artist and all of those cool things that we admire in other people but never have the guts to do ourselves so um yeah it's it's good having him in there too because otherwise it would just be the ensemble of the guys apart from a couple of people playing their um management team two actors involved in that part of things who are quite funny at it as well Norman Rosterton and John Junkin, who play off each other really nicely, and um, even though they're trying to keep the chaos around the Beatles under control in some ways, and and in their relationship with each other, one's very tall and one's not particularly tall, they become a part of that chaos that surrounds the Beatles and uh, the media phenomenon they become, and that's the other aspect of the Beatles that's really interesting. Before or since, there's never quite been the media frenzy there was around the Beatles. If you have a look at the documentary that Ron Howard did, just the uh, size of the phenomenon is mind-boggling even today. Um, Elvis was never quite that big. There weren't four of him apart from anything else. And there seems to be, and this may just be me projecting, I'm fully willing to accept the blame if that's the case. There seems to be a sexual aspect to the frantic screaming and and the emotions that young girls felt at Beatle concerts. I'm not going to use the word hysteria because that's got so many historical sexist connotations that it's not right to do that. But there is a a franticness and a, a heightened emotion which seems to kind of, the more people you have feeling those emotions, the more they seem to escalate. And there were girls passing out in the heat in the concert footage in the Ron Howard documentary, and there's a kind of desperation and a passion about female Beatle fans, and then probably subsequently um, Bieber fans and everybody else like that, which can't but have a sexual aspect to it. The anthropologist Desmond Morris, who wrote, amongst other things, The Naked Ape, has said that as much as anything else, the the shouting and the screaming and the heightened emotions, and this is, again, a male anthropologist of the 1960s looking at female responses, so take it with a grain of salt, if you will. But he said one of the, the screaming is as much for the other women and girls in the audience as it is for the object of their affection. It's, according to Morris saying, yes, just like you, I am sexually aroused by these people. And it may well be kind of a tribal primate thing that people feel like that. There are some flaws in the argument because Beatle fans were as young as nine years old, so obviously they weren't sexually mature. But the phenomenon, which dates back as far as Mozart 
and in more recent times, uh, the Bobby Soxes screaming and, and moaning for Frank Sinatra and other pop idols of the 1940s. It's a phenomenon that happens in groups, and I'm sure there have been studies also done about people yelling and screaming and shouting obscenities and insults at sporting matches. There's a, there's a mob psychology that is kind of interesting to to posit and the Beatles were one aspect of that in their heyday so I'm going to take another break now and when I get back I'm going to talk about I think the weaker of the two films Help which also stars amongst other people Leo McKern and Eleanor Bron and uh, they're quite interesting in this not necessarily all in a good way that's what I forgot to do. I forgot to mention the songs that are in A Hard Days, not the Beatles songs. And it will be remiss of me, and our good friend Morris may be pissed off at me if I don't mention them. Okay, so here we go. A Hard Day's Night, I Should Have Known Better, I Want to Be Your Man, there's a bit of that in there, Don't Bother Me, All My Lovin', If I Fell, Can't Buy Me Love, and I Love Her, I'm Happy Just to Dance With You, there's a thing called Ringo Seam, This Boy, Tell Me Why and She Loves You, all of them in this one movie, which is the reason why it became so popular, because all of the Beatles songs that were hits up to that time were a part of the film, pretty much. There probably are exceptions, but you know, it was a good overview of the early stuff of the Beatles. And then we go to this. In the name of Liberty. Daughter of the mountains, whose embrace with Rani made the whole world tremble. Tremble. Whose name is the terrible, whose name is baleful, whose name is the inaccessible, whose name is the black mother, mother of darkness. We turn our hearts to Kaili, drinker of blood. Black Mother, killer of demons, gorge on this flesh, our offering, drink. Hold. Hold. The ring. She's not wearing the sacrificial ring. She cannot be sacrificed without the ring. Where is the ring? Search her. What has she done with the ring? Somebody help, not just anybody help. You know, I need someone help. So that brings us to help 1965, much bigger budget uh, than a hard day's night, made in color, um, filmed in several locations, including the Austrian Alps and the Bahamas, and probably from my point of view, not as successful a film. Um, the supporting cast, I'll tell you why, I'll, I'll get it out of the way, I'll get it out of the way the bit I don't like about it. The brown face, there's brown face in the movie. Eleanor Brom playing Arme, a priestess of the Kali cult, and Leah McKern playing Clang, are doing it in brown face. They're putting on slight Indian accents, kind of Peter Sellers style, and it's the one bit that jars from a modern sensibility in the movie. It's... um. It's a kind of mockery of people's beliefs in some ways. But this is 1965. They should have known better. Should have known better. Yeah, okay, Beatles reference there. But they didn't. They did it. Um, it, was, it wasn't considered wrong at the time to do it. 
But anyway, Liam McKern, Australian actor, Sydney boy like myself. Uh, grandfather of one of my Facebook friends, Carrie McKern. Hi, Carrie, if you listen to this. And uh, an extremely fine actor. People knew, knew him most in his later career as Ron Polo, the Bailey. But he was a, a good, fine character. He was in episodes, an episode of The Prisoner with Patrick McGowan. He was also really good as a journalist in The Day the Earth Caught Fire, amongst other things. Um, I, I liked him a lot. And uh, in this, he's even though he gives it his best shot, and it's incredibly broad humour, really, it um, the character he plays is ill-considered, let's put it that way. But he's a jobbing actor, he needs a gig, it's a Beatles movie, you're going to get a lot of exposure by being in it. So I can understand why someone takes the gig. Eleanor Bron, who people remember as the love interest in Bedazzled, and who is incredibly cool, very, very good actor, a very good comedian, and um, you know, a lot of fun in everything I've seen her do. Uh, Victor Spinetti again turns up, Roy Kinnear turns up, uh, Patrick Cargill, who people remember from a TV series called Father Death Father in the 1970s, shows up playing um, a copper, a uh, police superintendent, in fact, will be more accurate with it. And there's a car thief, there's a little bit with a car thief, um, played by an actor called John Bluthel, who uh, ended up in Australia. He was originally born in Poland, but worked for a long time in Australia, and we consider him an Australian actor. He played the old professor, Professor Marcus, in Hail Caesar in 2016. Uh, born in 1929, so he's racked up a lot of birthdays, and he's still a jobbing actor. And all strengthened as well. I like John Bluthel as an actor. I saw him in a lot of things when I was growing up. And uh, a lot of TV. He did a lot of episodic TV, for instance. He turns up as a deli owner in The Return of Captain Invincible as well. Let's see. Um, just um, a good comedian and a, and a fine actor in dramatic roles as well. There's some good acting in this movie. Even though it's a bit slapsticky and Marx Brothers, I'll try to get... A decent pricey of this film up. Uh, it's got a much more complicated plot than A Hard Day's Night. Uh, an Eastern cult, a parody of the Thuggy cult, is about to sacrifice a woman to the goddess Kali. Just as she's about to be killed, the high priestess of the cult, Arme, Eleanor Bloran, notices she's not wearing a sacrificial ring. Ringo Starr, drummer of the Beatles, has it and is wearing it. It was secretly sent to him by the victim in a fan letter. Determined to retrieve the ring and sacrifice the woman, the great Swami Klang, Leo McKern, Arme and several cult members leave for London. After several failed attempts to steal the ring, they confront the Beatles in an Indian restaurant. Ringo learns that if he does not return the ring soon, he will become the next sacrifice. Ringo then discovers that the ring is stuck on his finger. And the, everything plays out from there. Um, there's, there's no logic, there's no rhyme or reason. The ring and the, and the cult are basically there to give some kind of a plot structure to the movie. And um, the energy levels of the Beatles seem to be a lot less in this film than they were in the first one. And I'll explain why in a little bit. But the production value is a lot higher. There's a scene where the four Beatles go into that they have side by side terrace houses in a working class street and they all go in their front doors and the ladies on the street say oh isn't it lovely they're all living in their own little houses they're just like us but when you go into the four doorways they've joined it up into one enormous bachelor pad 
for the four of them, which has um, a pop-up Wurlitzer organ for Paul and a conversation pit and all sorts of groovy things. There are snack vending machines and an automat built into the wall. So basically it's the Beatles, in a sense, taking the piss out of their own images, working-class boys, when they're incredibly wealthy by this stage. Not from the record sales because they had a really shit deal on record sales at the time but mostly because of the concert tours they were doing so frequently and so prolonged during this period of time again referencing the ron howard documentary but um so they they kind of taking the piss out of themselves to a certain extent this more than anything else is the movie of the beatles that influenced the monkeys tv series because the monkeys live in a, a kind of shared house, not entirely dissimilar to this. The humour and the um, the play acting and, and the kind of slapstick is very similar to help. Um, and, and the surrealism is definitely there. Now, a lot of people give the monkeys a lot of shit for being like the prefab for and things like that and being a manufactured band and all that kind of stuff. But uh, the Monkees actually and the Beatles got together at one stage in London in the 1960s, late late 1960s. And particularly John Lennon was a great fan of the Monkees and said, yeah, you guys are like the Marx Brothers. You, you, you're doing what we used to do and you're doing it very well. And your musicianship is, is getting better and better. Some of them were actors, some of them musicians, but the musicianship improved. And they were given a lot of love and a lot of support by the Beatles, particularly John. And that's kind of cool too. It's um, it's an understanding of what the monkeys were going through, is what the Beatles had been going through with the concert tours, and the criticism and the pressure of being who they became in a professional sense. So um, I've got a lot of respect for the Beatles for that, and particularly John. Uh, when I talked about the documentary with Rebecca McLaren on ABC local radio last week, I got asked a couple of questions which were quite good, and I'll answer the questions now because there's not a lot to say about Help as a movie. It's nicely filmed. It's a bit self-indulgent at times. The music, however, is of course great. The two questions I got asked were, am I a Paul person or am I a John person? And Rebecca's a Paul person. And I said I was a John person for a couple of reasons, one of which was the banal shit that Paul McCartney did later, like Ebony and Ivory, where he's comparing racism with a piano keyboard. And that kind of simplistic twaddle puts me off Paul McCartney. I'm sure he's done a lot of good things. I'm sure he's a very nice man for a billionaire. But I was much more interested in John Lennon for doing his own thing, you know, getting naked, spending time in bed for world peace, all that kind of weird and wonderful, crazy shit he did. Um, and, you know, I'm much more a John Lennon person than a Paul McCartney person. And it struck me when I was doing the research for the documentary that it's 36 years since John Lennon died. That's a hell of a long time. And um, I think popular music and popular culture would be much different had he not died. I think he may well have um, had a resurgence and done more and better music in the future. But uh, that was one of the questions I was asked. The other question I was asked was, what's your favourite Beatles song? And I thought about it for a little bit. And I kind of came up with an odd answer to that. It's not what you think. And I decided that my favourite Beatles song 
is Norwegian wood. I like the lyricism. I like the little bit of Indian musical influence in it. I like the lyrics. I like the fact that it's just about a guy and a girl getting together and having a gentle and loving time. And I kind of like that. It's got a simplicity, but a a lyricism about it and uh, and the kind of coolness about it that I appreciate. And, um, yeah, it surprised me because it was off the top of my head. It wasn't a question that we planned at all. And um, Rebecca knows that I can kind of wing it when I get thrown a question like that. And that, that was the answer I came up with. And I'm still happy with that answer. I do like Norwegian wood. But overall, one of the things that watching these two movies and also watching the Ron Howard documentary, which is a little bit... Um, careful because it was done with the cooperation of the um, alive Beatles and the estates of the other two Beatles, George and John, is that because of that, the concert tour years that the Ron Howard documentary covers are handled in a very careful and respectful manner. There's nothing kind of controversial apart from John saying that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. That's the only controversy we have there. There's a little bit of a talk about something that actually weakens help. So we'll kind of swing things back to help now. Uh, basically, the, the movie's all about the cult trying to get the ring back. And it plays in a number of places. Um, the Swiss Alps, the Bahamas, which is not filmed particularly well for some reason. I mean, it's a beautiful place, but apparently the weather was quite cold for the Bahamas at the time, so you didn't get those popping sunny days that you do in say for instance in um the caribbean based james bond films of around the same time you don't get that kind of visually stimulating thing that you get from the bond but there are one of the weaknesses in the film and this is understandable is basically the beatles were fucking stoned out of their brains when they made this movie they were having marijuana for breakfast and uh, mid-afternoon somebody would have a glass of wine and all bets were off and they were, yeah, they had a great time and they were flying to the Caribbean on an aeroplane smoking dope all the way and they, um, they had a good time in that sense but I can understand why too because the documentary explained that to me in a very accessible way the Beatles were doing crazy length concert tours. They were doing like 25 cities in 30 days on their American tours. They were touring for prolonged periods of time. There was no break. There was hardly a minute to themselves, um, apart from when they go back to the hotel room and, and just crash in their rooms. And they were two to a room in those rooms. So they're, they're, doing, they're doing the albums. They're doing the concert tours. They're doing the promotional stuff. They're traveling around the world, doing all sorts of stuff like that. And the studio was a sanctuary for them where they could experiment and be themselves and discover new stuff. And, and it was their laboratory, in a sense. So there was an immense pressure on these guys. You know, they were the biggest pop culture and, in some ways, cultural phenomenon of their time. And that's a, that's a lot of pressure for anybody, uh, particularly for working-class guys from Liverpool who were in their 20s and... Yeah, trying to do the thing they enjoy to do and yet there's all this pressure to do all of this stuff the concert tours were crazy some of them ended in near riots um, teenage girls were 
being ferried out in ambulances. There's an insanity to the Beatles phenomenon that really is um, quite crazy in a lot of ways. So I can understand why when the opportunity to take a chuff came up, that they would self-medicate with this. It's better than self-medicating with alcohol, uh, but I think it makes help a weaker movie. Apart from Ringo, the Beatles don't show as strong characters in the film, particularly. They don't have the kind of brash cockiness they had in the first film. And Ringo being the focus of this one is kind of cool, and he does, he's got a way with comedy, and he does pretty well with it, but there's a, a level of energy that is there in the music, but is not there in the acting in the film. And I can understand why, because basically they were shit-faced. Nonetheless, the movie, again, was very, very successful. These guys could have sat in front of a Araflex camera and read phone books, and they would have been successful if, they, if there were music clips interspersed with them reading the phone books. But they, they kind of... Um, had a, a kind of craziness about the thing, even though those energy levels were low. It was anarchic. Um, people have compared it with Hells of Poppin' and Mark's Brothers Duck Soup and things like that, but I don't think the character, you know, the, the personas are as strong as they were for the Marx Brothers and in the Marx Brothers movies, or even in Hells of Poppin' with Olsen and Johnson. I don't think they're as strong as that. But I think the music kind of balances that a little bit. Because basically the movie was there for the music rather than the music being there for the movie. And the music that they played in Help is pretty damn good as well. It's uh, some of Lennon McCartney and Starr and Harrison's best. There's Help, You're Gonna Lose That Girl, You Gotta Hide Your Love Away, Ticket to Ride, I Need You, The Night Before, Another Girl, She's a Woman, A Hard Day's Night turns up in there as well. I'm happy just to dance with you, and you can't do that. So it's still a strong album and a strong soundtrack. But I think it, in some ways it's the lesser of the two because there isn't quite that discipline that the first one had, even though the first one had a much more simple plot line, which is, you know, an incredibly successful band go to a concert while they're trying to deal with Paul's um, larcenous and lustful grandfather. Yeah, that, that kind of works. But in this one, the thuggy cult and that kind of surrealism doesn't quite work from a 21st century point of view because of the brown face stuff. It, it kind of makes you slightly cringe when you see it. But again, that, that uh, cultures evolve and hopefully evolve upwards. And our recognition of cultural appropriation and all of those kind of issues have an influence on it. But nonetheless, it's beautifully filmed, of course. Um, Dick Lester did a fantastic job on it. Um, later on, went on to make two Superman movies, for probably for the Bucks. Uh, he, he did a lot of the second movie, even though Richard Donner filmed some of it. it was, some of it was refilmed so that um, Richard Lester could get the rights. He did the two 1970s Musketeer movies as well, which was um, which had Ollie Reed in it, apart from anything else, which is a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, Dick Lester did hit that wave with the Be two Beatles movies he did. That wave of um, youth culture and pop culture and Mersey Beat music meets Carnaby Street clothing. All of those kind of things were blended together 
in these films, and even though they do have some bits that don't quite work and they're not particularly strong as bits of cinema, as popular culture touch points and as um, a chance for us to see the Beatles doing something besides standing in front of a yeah, standing behind a drum set and a cu- and three guitars. It's it's good to see them there. The personas aren't necessarily the men, though there were a lot of aspects of them in those personas. But it, it's just a moment in time, Beatlemania, in that the 1964-1965 period, when these guys and Sean Connery ruled the world of media and of entertainment to a big extent. They were on Ed Sullivan. They um, travelled to Japan and Australia and New Zealand and across Europe and across the North America at least. And and I think they went to South America once as well. They basically spanned the world in a way that Elvis never did because Colonel Tom Parker was an illegal alien and would never want Elvis to tour overseas. But they, they were just a moment of weirdness and wonderfulness and at the moment which is 50 years in the past half a century has passed since Beatlemania which is mind-boggling and that's I was kind of thinking about that and I, I like to put dates in perspective and the passage of time in perspective it's just one of those mental quirks that I have the Beatle, Beatlemania is as far away from us as World War I was from Beatlemania which is kind of mind-boggling in a lot of ways, and which is one of the reasons why there's that um, thing on the... Um, there's a scene in Help, which is um, on the Salisbury Plains, plain surrounded by the British Army, and there's um, a weird, surreal thing where the Beatles are playing in the middle of war games with tanks and things like that on the Salisbury Plains near Stonehenge. And that's kind of, you know, a, a kind of touched, a cultural touchstone for them is World War Two and World War One to a certain extent. They were stuff that was in the past, but was very much on people's minds the same way that pop culture from the 70s and 80s is for us. Because 1965 was only 20 years after the World War ended, World War Two. And so, if you see, even things like the John Lennon movie, Oh, What a Lovely War. This was stuff within human memory and within the memory of the people as well. The Beatles remember, as young children, World War Two, which is kind of um, interesting as well and, and gives us a bit of a perspective on what they would see as being playful and mocking the the authorities are uh, all of the older people all of the uh, people who were in their 40s and so had fought in world war Two, and then this young brash generation comes up that acknowledges that but doesn't choose to live their lives in the shadow of that they decide to make their own path and their own path is not necessarily a path of war but a path of peace and because they'd grown up in such a militarised world, they were born into a world at war with itself. It's understandable why the 60s pop culture and the 60s youth culture and the 60s culture of peace came about because they saw what war had done to their immediate ancestors. And I think that 
a lot of the peace movement is a reaction to that, as well as a reaction to the arbitrariness of government and, and authorities in recruiting young men to fight wars. But we drifted a bit off Beatles movies and into mid-20th century zeitgeist a little too much there. So I'm gonna, this is going to be a fairly short paleo cinema. We also got some feedback from Mark Leeper, who sent me an email to uh, feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. Uh, he said, I like your choice of films this week. This is about Wild River and Fall of the Roman Empire. I'd seen both films recently and enjoyed them both. I was expecting you to mention that the Fall of the Roman Empire was largely remade as Gladiator. They had the same speculations about Commodus murdering Marcus Aurelius, so Marcus Aurelius's best general would not become emperor instead, and in the end the general has a duel with Commodus. Two films have much in common. Yeah, they do. I haven't seen Gladiator since it first came out around the turn of the century, Mark. But I would have seen the parallels a lot more had I seen it more recently. But um, yeah, Fall of the Roman Empire does have a moodiness about it that I really like and a melancholy. And that crazy bit at the end with the javelin jewels kind of makes it work. It's a a very gonzo kind of scene coming in a sense out of left field when a lot of the film is very much kind of slow and measured and funereal. That javelin duel between Christopher Plummer and Stephen Boyd really does pop. It's, a, it's an interesting little scene, that. And thanks for the feedback, Mark. But I'm going to leave you with an alternative version of A Hard Day's Night. There are any number of them. If you do a quick YouTube search, you'll find 50 or 60 of them. But I found a jazz version of A Hard Day's Night, which is slightly cool and slightly laid back. So I'm going to play that now and um, leave you with that. Again, thank you to the two Kerrys and... Uh, the other people haven't got onto the Patreon credits yet. Sorry, things things have just been a bit strange here at the moment. But I guarantee next Martian Drive-In podcast, I will update the credits. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. Watch bad movies, watch good movies, listen to good music, listen to bad music, listen to all music, except Justin Bieber, Katy Perry, and pretty much anything by ABBA. And I'll be back in a week with a Martian Driving podcast and two weeks with a Paleo Cinema podcast. And I'll catch you guys later. Take care. It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a duck It's been a hard day's night I should be sleeping like a lord But when I get home to you I find the things that you do will make me feel alright You know I work all day To get your money, buy your things And it's worth it just to hear you say You're gonna give me everything That's why I love to come home Cause when I get you alone You know I feel okay When I'm home, everything seems to be right. When I'm home, I'm feeling you holding me tight, yeah. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. 
should be sleeping like a lord. But when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel alright. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers, and here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, the location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve, our script doctor, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Kerry, our second script doctor, Richard, our set photographer, and our extras, Kathleen, Mark, and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects, and Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema.